By Jove, it's the Treasure Trove! Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of Andy's Treasure Trove San Francisco. It's an acoustical space featuring interviews with artists and other interesting people, plus audio adventures focusing on art and culture. I'm your host, Andy Moore. There's also an Andy's Treasure Trove website at, where else? Andy'sTreasureTrove.com, and it contains descriptions of every episode of this podcast, as well as lots of photos and videos from each episode, and, as they say, much, much more. And don't forget the Treasure Trove online store, where you can buy all your Andy's Treasure Trove gear, including t-shirts, coffee mugs, baseball caps, bumper stickers, throw pillows, pet food bowls, you name it. Check it out at, you guessed it, www.andystreasuretrove.com. Now, before we get to the heart of today's episode, episode number 11, my interview with the great writer and movie director Terrence Davies, I want to play for you a fun response to the request I made a few episodes ago asking for musically-minded listeners to send me some original theme music or theme songs that I can use at the start of my show. To date, no one has sent me any new theme music. What was I to do? Well, I begged is what I did. I begged my very musical and also rather silly friend David Lyle to come over to the Andy's Treasure Trove Hilltop Multimedia Complex, and we went into the so-called Music Room, which adjoins the so-called Great Hall of 100 Treasure Boxes that I'll tell you more about in a future episode. In the so-called Music Room, I have an out-of-tune piano, uh, an accordion, a flute, and an antique zither. After some friendly pressure and an adult beverage or two, David chose the out-of-tune piano, sat down, and offered me two off-the-cuff possible podcast-themed songs. His first offering includes two blank spaces for me to chime in announcing the contents of the current episode and any sponsors for that episode. But I'm not using this to introduce today's episode, so those spaces will remain empty as I play for you now. David Lyle's entry number one in the ever-expanding collection of Andy's Treasure Trove opening theme music. The treasure trove, it's a treasure trove. Open the case, you never know what you might find in Andy's treasure trove. Here comes Andy! (laughs) Andy! What's in your treasure box today? Really? What else? No, you're kidding! Wahoo! Andy's treasure trove, it's a treasure trove. Open the box and there's your treasure. Andy's treasure trove. Never miss a single episode of Andy's treasure trove. Pretty zany. Should I keep it in the collection? Let me know via my website or via the listener call-in line listed at andystreasuretrove.com. Here's David's other contribution, and though it's in the comedic vein as well, it touches on something serious that, it so happens, is very applicable to today's episode. So let's call this the official intro music for this episode, episode 11 of Andy's Treasure Trove, with thanks to David Lyle. It's Andy's Treasure Trove. His favorite color is mauve. That's just a little something I want you to know about Andy's treasure trove. It's a pleasure at your leisure. If there's some measure, 
in your cove. <laughs> but don't forget your Novocaine, sometimes you'll be in pain. And these treasure trove. Not everything's for everyone, remember, we are all individuals. Everybody's different, you know. Thanks very much, David. And yes, everyone is different, and we all have various degrees of success understanding others and even understanding ourselves. The concept of the tortured artist struggling and suffering and thereby enriching his or her artwork is a familiar narrative, and the life of British actor, writer, director Terence Davies exemplifies this narrative to a T. Born in 1945 in Liverpool, England, he was the youngest of ten children in a Catholic working-class family with an abusive father, bullies at school, the abuses of the Catholic Church, and Terence's own legendary self-loathing for being gay. After a shutdown adolescence, he spent years in a career as an accountant. His first three short films in the 1980s, entitled Children, Madonna and Child, and Death and Transfiguration, later became known as the Terence Davies Trilogy. They were semi-autobiographical glimpses into the harrowing life of torment experienced by Davies in post-World War II Liverpool. In his first feature film, 1988's Distant Voices, Still Lives, the family again lives in the shadow of a monstrously abusive father, this time played by the great British character actor Pete Postlewaite, whom Davies says is the only actor to play a member of his family who actually looked like the person they were playing. The main subject of my recent chat with Terence Davies was his next feature as a writer and director in 1992, a film called The Long Day Closes, which is one of my favorite films of all time. In the recorded chat you'll hear in a moment, Terence and I discuss this charming, poignant, heartwarming, and beautiful film centering on the favorite time of his childhood between the time his abusive father died and the family could relax a little bit and the onset of his own highly fraught adolescence. Terence's next two features as a director, but not writer, were 1995's The Neon Bible and 2000's The House of Mirth. We talked about several of his favorite cinematic techniques, including his recontextualizing of fragments of soundtracks from other movies. We talked about the lost tradition of public singing in Britain and of the chronic low self-esteem that haunts this man constantly. And we talked about his new documentary essay film about Liverpool entitled Of Time and the City, opening on January 21 at Film Forum in New York City, after a special screening at the Cannes Film Festival last year. Terence Davies is also being honored at New York's Museum of Modern Art this week, and in an article in yesterday's New York Times, that's January 11th New York Times, writer Dennis Lim compared Terence Davies with the English singer Morrissey in that they have both made a beautiful body of work based on misery. While that may be true, it certainly is true of one of my heroes, Terence Davies, whom I spoke to on the phone following a chance meeting weeks earlier at the Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley, California. We started with his childhood in Liverpool. Well, I, I mean, when I started writing, I mean, I, I, because it started really with the trilogy, um, that was my only sort of world experience, if you like. That was my entire world. And I, I wrote about um, those, those, those episodes simply because I needed I needed to. I didn't realize at the time, but I needed to do them. Um, and... Um, then you know when I got my first feature, which is Distant Voices Still Lives, you know that um, was um, an exploration of you know the the, the the very very detrimental effect my father had on part of my family. And then Long Day Closes was the second um, uh, of the features, but because after my father died, it was as if there were like two families, if you see what I mean. And um, I, I, I 
I wanted to write about that separately, and um, because when I made Distant Voices, I, I, I was too inexperienced to write about an entire family like that. So I confined Distant Voices to lives to, you know, my two older sisters and eldest brother, my mother and father, and then um, Long Day Closes was was specifically about me, and so I then did it um, with my other sister, my other two brothers, did it that way, um, because uh, as you know, there's no reference to my father at all in Long Day Closes, um, but it was uh, that was my only sort of um, way of getting um, those stories out uh, by writing about them. Well, your your father's character, whereas he does not appear in the long day closes, he's present in a way simply by his obvious absence. Yes, I suppose that's true. Um, because you know, once he died, you know, we began to live. I mean, Mum was able to go out, and you know, um, people came to the house, and all the things that you know um, that we weren't allowed to do when he was he was alive. And our house became a kind of magnet. It, you know, the people came there all the time. Everyone, all my brothers and sisters' friends came. You know, there the always seemed to be you know something to celebrate. And if there was a wedding, you know, my first my first sister who got married was Maisie, um, and that wedding lasted about a week. Everyone kept on coming in, and there would be drinks, and then another party, um, that kind of thing, which would have been unthinkable when he was alive. Well. Bud, the character who's about 11 years old in The Long Day Closes, uh, you've made it clear, is an autobiographical uh, sketch of yourself. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about trying to have another person <laughs> embody yourself in, in, in a work of art like this, and the process you went through, uh, not only in conceptualizing the script, but also in casting uh, the actor who played Bud. Well, I mean, it... it, it, it not as sort of daunting as it sounds really um, and you know what was difficult the difficulty in writing um, both features was what to leave out that was the difficulty um, because so much had happened um, and the, the difficulty with casting anyone whether it's me or the rest of my family you know um, is that you're not trying to give you're not trying to find somebody who looks like you you know or looks like your sisters or or, or, or anything with the exception of Peter Bosonsworth who played my father he actually looks like my father um, that, but that was coincidental um, because other people can't be you. They can't be your family. Um, so you're actually um, trying to find something in them where there will be um, a presence on the screen that will be believable because they, they're not you. They're not your family. Um, so you have to realize there's a, that there's a difference. Um, and once you've written something down, um, as in both features, it, it changes. You know, a lot of things did happen, but they didn't happen in that order, you know, because memory doesn't work linearly, it works cyclically, so um, and other things were, th things which were important became small events, small events became big events um, so, so that's, that's an aesthetic view of a remembered life, um, so by the very fact that you do that, you change the nature of the story, because obviously it's impossible to show exactly what it was like, you know um, that's actually impossible um, and you have to try and capture the quintessence of any memory of any action of any experience and refine it down and then when someone comes along to do that you have to allow them the space to interpret what you've written um, and that's when it becomes something beyond 
what it originally was. Um, but the only criteria you've got when you cast anybody, whether they're playing me or any member of my family, is are they believable as actors or actresses? That's what, because if they, if they can look like you and they can be very nice people, but if, if, if they can't act, then you've got a problem. <laughs> well, so, and essentially it's kind of a three-step uh, process because first we have reality as you lived it, then we have the memory of that reality as your mind has re-edited it, perhaps, or, or you know the things we do as you were just describing to our own memories, mm-hmm. and then giving the responsibility over to someone else or a group of people working together to somehow portray some of those truths without necessarily having to duplicate them. That's right, and and of course you can't duplicate them. You can, you can only replicate them. It, it, it's like um, when you used to have carbon paper. You know, the more the more copies that you you do um, with more and more carbon paper, the fainter it becomes. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that it can't be as powerful once reinterpreted, because that's what I think that's what all experience has to be. It has to be re-experienced, a by the person who's experienced it, and then if you make it into a film, you know, or a play, then it's reinterpreted yet again. The, the, what is difficult is two things, I think. One, to keep an aesthetic distance on it, and B, is to be sure that they are not doing things which are, which you feel are aesthetically untrue. You know, I mean, one of the people um, who was playing one of the friends of my sister in Long Day Closes said, you know, we, we take our responsibility very seriously. These are real people we're portraying, which I thought was a lovely thing to say. Yes, I mean, it's <laughs> one hopes that people with the responsibility of portraying other people or ideas feel that it is a responsibility and it's not just an exercise. Well, so Lee McCormick, who who played um, 11-year-old Bud, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with his work. Do you know, has he gone on to... A big acting career, or is he... Uh... No, no, not at all. I mean, uh, I saw a lot of children um, uh, for the role. Again, it's an instinct when you, you feel that someone can do it. But he'd only been in one play at school where he played a gorilla, apparently, um, <laughs> and didn't want to do it. He thought it was, acting was really, really boring and wanted to be a fireman. And as far as I know, that's what he became, because <laughs> we've lost touch. Very interesting. Well, he... You know, who knows what's going, what was going on in the actor's mind, but there, so much was able to be projected into the character's mind, at least from my seat in the audience. Uh, you can see the mind working, and you can see his face drinking in everything around him, and yet you're not really sure what, where he's at. I mean, you, you get a lot of clues throughout, but I think I mentioned to you once that I, I felt a little bit afraid for him uh, going out into the world after the bullying he received at school. In in a kind of a dog eat dog world, uh, working class neighborhood, I, I figure that if if he is a portrayal of you, that you had a very interesting journey between being eleven years old and uh, your adult years when you started to make art for the rest of the world. How did you come out of the environment you came out of and become able to be expansive enough to share your vision with millions of people? Well. Uh- to be honest with you, I mean, I, I don't really know. I don't really deal with the world very well. Um, I'm frightened of it most of the time. Um, I'm still terrified, mostly of men. Usually I feel inferior to them. Um, it, it is, I haven't found a way of doing that. Um, I just knew that I would, I had to 
I had to do something artistic. I didn't know what it was. I never ever thought, originally I wanted to act and just write, that was all. I never ever thought I would become you know, a film director and that the films would take this, have this kind of response. Um, I don't really manage the world very well. Um, uh, uh, one of the, you know, the blights on my life is the fact that, you know, I've got a large working class Catholic family and I was very, very devout. I really did believe. Um, and then I lost my faith after, you know, years of trying to be forgiven for being gay, which actually has ruined my life. I, I, I hate it. I shall go to my grave hating it. And it is a real burden. Um, that is very, very difficult to cope with because, you know, no one's ever been interested in me. Perhaps if I had been very good looking with a great body and, you know, had lots and lots of lovers, that would have been wonderful. But that's not happened. I'm not good looking. I don't have a good body. And no one's ever been interested. Um, so I've been largely selling but um, which is does corrode you in a certain way um, and the, the, the thing is that I because I, I decided I would not practice uh, being gay because I really don't like it I poured myself entirely into my work the point the, the drawback with that is it is really unhealthy because if I can't get work or it's um, rejected then it's it's a blow that's very very difficult to bear and it's very very difficult to sustain your belief in what you do. I mean, I've not worked for the past seven and a half years. Everything I tried to get off the ground has not been, has come to fruition. Now, at last, um, I, I've got um, this um, documentary on Liverpool, which seems to, you know, um, be causing a bit of a stir, which I'm very, very pleased about. Um, but I don't really deal with the world very well. I really, really don't. Um, I'm subject to a great deal of despair, a great deal of depression, um, and sometimes even my great solaces like um, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets or the music of Bruckner. Um, even they don't work sometimes. Um, and that's when it becomes very, very difficult. I have not matured enough to deal with the world, I'm afraid. Well, I'm glad that you do find some solace in beautiful things. Uh, that's certainly one of the things that keeps me going, is the fact that no matter what's happening in my life, there are beautiful things everywhere and beautiful people. I, when you mentioned that your upbringing and your homosexuality and how that was dealt with, certainly when you were growing up, was a corroding experience. I would imagine it also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe it helped stoke the, the fires of creation to get you to the point where you were able to treat these subjects in, in film. Well, maybe, but what's very difficult is you know, when you're bullied... You were bullied at school, and that went on for four years, every day for four years, and I didn't tell anyone. And my father, who was very violent and very ill, and, um, that you have your self-esteem battered out of you. And I, I, I do believe very strongly that you don't get that esteem back. You can't manufacture it. Um, well, at least I can't, anyway. Um, perhaps those all those different forces which were working on me did produce, you know, creativity. I don't know, because it's very hard to know um, where creativity comes from. You know, why why, why should, you know, um, I and the family be the creative one, if you like. Um, but what I suppose I admire, I admire kind of courage in the face of that, that difficulty. I mean, it's not only, it's one of the reasons I love Brooklyn, not only primarily because, you know, of the music, which I do think is really sublime. But, I mean, we conducted one of his symphonies when he was 47, the, the fifth, I think it was, but I'm not sure. And a 17-year-old Marlowe was in the audience. And by the time we'd finished conducting the symphony, there were more people in the orchestra than there were in the auditorium. And he just stood on the podium and wept. And young Marlowe said, you know, but Dr. Brooks, 
know, you know, it's great music. And he just said, yes, but no one wants to hear it. You know, and he then went on to write another four or five symphonies. I, I find that kind of courage extraordinary, you know. Well, uh, again, I refer back to you. I mean, you're putting one foot in front of the other, and uh, you just mentioned a new film project. So I feel f- I, I'm empathetic for um, all the difficulties you and many of us have. Um, I'm just grateful that you're still here and trudging onward. Thank you. I, I know that you've said work is um, a large part of your identity, and when the work doesn't go well or when it's not received well, it's devastating, and I certainly know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Bruckner, though, and that brings me around to another question about The Long Day Closes, and one of the things I like about it very much is that in addition to the dialogue and what we might think of as uh, background music in movies. There are some very specific quotes of popular music from the post-World War II era and snippets from other film, uh, dialogue from other films that appear throughout the film. And I think it's a very interesting technique. And I wonder, uh, I want to ask you how you came upon the idea to use that technique and how it, how it works for you. I'm not sure how where any idea comes from, but you know all the snippets are from films that I actually love that gave me enormous enormous pleasure and still do you know you know the lady killers kind hearts and coronets Mimi and St Louis etc et and they they form part of your emotional aesthetic memory you know um, and very often I, I mean I, I wasn't born when. Mimi and St. Louis made, because as you know, it's made in 1944, and I'd only ever seen it on television, you know. Um, but th- that, of course, conveys what we all want. It conveys the perfect family. It's an p- absolute perfect family, you know, and there are things in it which still break your heart, you know, when they turn the lights out together, and it's just two young people who long to love. I just find that heartbreakingly beautiful. Um, and you know, The Lady Killers, not the awful remake, but the one in 1956, is so wonderful, because we had wonderful comedy actors then. Um, and seeing it for the first time, I actually saw it in the cinema in 56, you know. And then again, you know, because I was only four when it was made, Count Arts and Coronets was 1949, seeing it on television, I mean, that it's the greatest comedy ever made. It's even better than Some Like It Hot, which, and I love Some Like It Hot, but the, nothing can compete with the sheer dignity and cleverness and the deliciousness of Kind Hearts and Coronets. Um, so all those things have uh, memories and, and things that I saw, like the Lady Girls, I can tell you where I saw them, what route I took and where I sat. I mean, it's that vivid. So that's where they were in. <laughs> Getting back to the long day closes, uh, the character Bud discovers a whole new world in Hollywood musicals and spends a lot of time kind of in a trance in the audience of the movie theater. That reminds me of what has to be, for me, one of of the most interesting openings to a film ever. And uh, again, we're talking about the long day closes when... Uh, after some credits with some classical music, and forgive me, I don't know what music it is, but they're very... It's uh, it's um, Boccarini's Minuet, which is played throughout the Lady Killers. <laughs> oh, okay. Everything connects. Well, anyway, we get this lovely music and a whole lot of credits. Sometimes credits like that appear at the end, but I really like the fact that you roll out all the credits with this delightful music, and then we get to the movie itself. And the first image we see, is, if I recall correctly, is a brick wall. 
with the name of the street on it. And when we're looking at this brick wall, we hear, I think it's the 20th Century Fox fanfare written by Randy Newman's uncle. That's right. And it's just like you're watching the most fantastic thing ever, but you're watching a brick wall. And then we turn from the brick wall and we see the street, which is a dumpy, rundown, <laughs> ravaged-looking, falling-apart street at night in the rain. And we hear Nat King Cole singing Stardust. And you you know before you see anything more about the film that this this is not going to be a sit back and just enjoy it film. This is going to be a film that you can really engage in. Um, so thank you for that moment. That's a very <laughs> I know where I was when I saw that for the first time. So that's uh, <laughs> thank you. Another thing I really love about the film, and, and the reason we're talking about this film, I must say, is because it's one of my favorite films of all time. The visual style of the long day closes. It's been written about and talked about a lot. You can almost taste it. It's so savory. The light, the camera movement, the soundtrack, which we've just been talking about. I'm very interested in how you worked with your cinematographer to create that, that visual world, uh, apart from the soundtrack. Well, um, what I do with, with, with every film, I make lots of uh, tests so we get a look. I wanted to try and recreate old three-strip Technicolor, which is absolutely gorgeous, as you know. And so and once you've got the look, then the, the style, you know, um, is there already. I mean, you've, you've got to work out the look first, and and then, you know, you then work out technically how you can do things. Like, I mean, Christ revolving on the cross, of course, it doesn't revolve at all. It was the camera that was moving. It did, I think, nine different things at the same time, and it, was, it took nine hours to, you know, set up, rehearse, and shoot. It's about texture. You know, um, when I was a child, I did sit, I was on my own a lot, you know, although I never felt lonely as a child. Um, but I looked at things, I looked at textures, light on the floor, um, where the way the walls were, you know, um, uh, uh, there we had this um, wallpaper was called anaglypta, which had patterns on it, which when it was painted, you know, um, had real deep texture to it. So uh, it was about texture as well. You know, it can't just be, you know, a, a recreation of the 50s. Uh, and also there, technically, what you get in a lot of films which are about the 50s, say it's set in 1956, you get everything that was right in 1956, which is actually nonsense, because those days you had furniture, for instance, that went back to before the First World War or just after the war, because there was no credit like there is now. You know, there was, so if you couldn't afford to buy something, you had to either be given it or buy it secondhand. So there was all that texture as well, as well as the clothes. Um, so it was all about texture as well, and um, and trying to get that that right. I mean, you know, and uh, uh, you know, Christopher Hobbs who designed it for me, you know, is a wonderful, wonderful man. I mean, when when the the door, the front door and the parlour door, um, the vestibule door open. But but sees it open. They are in fact that was a little miniature set um, on on grease on on a greased surface, which we we just pulled apart. But they're actually miniature. I had no idea. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> well, one of my favorite shots, and I've read many comments about it, is sort of exemplifying this love affair with texture. Is a, a shot where the sunlight is falling on the carpeting, and what I find most gratifying is the amount of time we're allowed to watch that shot. So many movies would have either not shown that shot or just cut away quickly, but we're watching something very simple, and yet something that really has the whole cosmos in it, carpet with dappled sun falling on it. And 
I don't know if you remember being in the editing room with the editor, but was there some sort of a conversation like, well, I think if we held it a half second longer, we're not going to, we're not going to turn the audience off. Or was it just, this is how long it has to be. And I'm not even thinking about the audience. Yeah, because w w once we set it up and um, obviously, you know, the, the, getting the, the light to, to, to come in and out and all that was absolutely controlled by us. Um, but it was actually shot to the, George Butterworth music, a Shropshire lad. So that determined its length. And so that when we got into uh, the cutting room, as we, we then re-recorded the, the, the George Butterworth Shropshire lad, and we just put it to it. I mean, but it, it was determined, we had playback of the George Butterworth when we were shooting it. Now, do you use playback like that a lot? I have done, yeah, because, cause, uh, you know, I, I mean, I certainly think that if if you're moving the, the the camera either in a track or a crane to music, and you obviously you've got to clear it first, then you have to have that as playback. Um, uh, so, certainly, it, it determines to make sure that um, all the tracks, say at the end, that the overhead tracks are all the same speed. But also, what is incredible was that as soon as you begin to play it, the whole crew come alive. You can understand why in the silent movies they played uh, mood music on set, because it really does work. I know that you were uh, made a fellow of the British Film Institute uh, in recognition of your outstanding contribution to film culture. Tell me what that was like and, and what you feel about it now. Well, it, it didn't seem to have anything to do with me <laughs> because I don't see myself like that at all. I mean, I just don't. You know, when I think of, you know, other people's work that I, I admire and revere, mine seems to be very poor by comparison. So it was very nice for my for the old ego, but um, I just thought, well, I, I, I wonder why I'm getting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like that. We like humbleness. You know, the recipients of our major awards. <laughs> Next, I asked Terence about all the scenes in The Long Day Closes where the family is sitting around singing with neighbors and friends, or they're at the local pub. Again, singing, taking turns, singing songs that they all know. Friends would come over and hang out at the house, and there was a lot of singing. And it seemed like nobody was embarrassed about it. In this country, uh, I think people are more self-conscious. Uh, maybe they are in Britain now. Is, is singing in public and singing with friends in homes still a major part of British life? No, that's gone. That's gone. That's absolutely gone completely. With the, you know, the introduction of you know games in... Uh, pubs and jukeboxes and things like that, and no, that's gone. And, and also, the, the nature of popular music has changed. Popular music isn't meant to be reproduced, because usually, and when it is, the, the lyrics are usually so awful, you know, you're glad you didn't hear them in the first place. Um, but when I was growing up, I mean, Cole Porter was still alive and writing. You know, those songs were meant to be um, reproduced, you know, and people did sing, and a lot of people, particularly in my family, had very good voices. My mother had a lovely mellifluous voice, and, you know, two of my sisters did, my eldest brother, you know, I mean, so, but popular music was meant to be sung, because very often when you went and got a record, you had the lyrics on the back of the record, you know, um, but pop, popular music really has not doesn't do that now. It's not. It's not there. That's not its function. You know, um, as someone who's now in his sixties, it just seems to me to be very, very loud and almost anti-literate. You know, um, deliberately illiterate. And when you do hear, you know, the lyrics, you know, they're usually so banal. You know, and you just think, how can anyone take this this kind of thing seriously? I mean, I, I do think, you know, what we've seen over the last 
40 years is, is a gradual decline of most art forms. They've become vulgarized um, because now one just feels it's about money. And once that happens, you know, that, that kills its stone dead. You know, it kills anything stone dead because real art and, and you had most, and they were mostly American, um, wonderful songwriters, you know, who would really hone their craft. You know, Rogers and Hart, you know, Rogers and Hamstein, Hoagy Carmichael, um, God, one could go on and on and on, Cole Porter, one could go on and on and on. That is an, that is an extraordinary, um, output from the late 90s, the 1890s, to, you know, the mid-50s, uh, the great period of uh, American songwriting, which was poetry for the ordinary person, you know. Um, some of the lyrics of uh, Lorenz Hart are heartbreaking, you know, um, and wonderfully romantic as well. That isn't the case anymore, in my opinion. That's why I don't listen to pop music. That's why, you know, having to listen to it at all is sheer torture. I mean, uh, if if it's in a, I go into a, a shop and they're playing it, I walk out straight away because I just want, I just feel, kill me now. I cannot bear this noise. You know, it, I just think particularly pop music has just become commercially grotesque noise. Then I asked Terence about his new film, A Portrait of Liverpool, entitled Of Time and the City. I heard a rumor that it's going to the Cannes Film Festival. Yes, and it's, and it's getting a special screening at Cannes, no less. And basically it's about the, the, the city from 45 when I was born to um, the present day. But again, it's about the nature of memory, the nature of time, and what, and what it felt like being there in, in that time from 45 to 73, which is when I left to go to drama school. Um, and then going back and revisiting that alien landscape. Uh, it's about that. There's a lot of poetry. There's a lot of prose. There's a lot of music. Um, and it's 72 minutes long. <laughs> You referred to it as a documentary, and yet it sounds more like an essay, really. Well, it is really, um, but, but because it's nonfiction, um, uh, then that's the, the only thing which covers it. Really, documentary, but it is it, it is actually an essay. You're actually right. Um, uh, and um, someone who saw a rough cut said it's also a eulogy and a love song to Liverpool, which was a, a lovely way of putting it. The, the, the main square in Liverpool is called Williamson Square, and um, so go and. Sh- Shoot, see what you you can see that you you might be, think was interesting, um, and they came back with a lot of footage. There was people just milling around, but a lot of in there was a lot of people with young children. Now, when I was growing up on the radio, there was a, a thing uh, called on the BBC called Listen with Mother, and it had a theme tune, and it's the best sirs from the Dolly Suite by. Um, Foray. And as soon as I saw that footage, I said, just take out all that footage that's w- with children and l- let's play the Dolly Suite underneath it. And it works. That was what, things like that do make me terribly excited, you know, because I had no idea what they would come back with. And then you get a sequence because it triggers a memory within you. I find that wonderful. That was incredibly liberating. Whether it was lurking in your subconscious mind and just waiting to come out, or whether it came out of left field and was a gift from the gods, or however you want to put it, it's it's like uh, alchemy. Yeah, yeah, it's true magic because I had no idea what they would come back with, and and of course it's about the nature of time and memory, but also one of the producers said it's about aging, and I said suddenly I realized it was. All you see are very very 
small children or people who are now in old age, which is very, very odd. Um, and and it is a farewell. It's a it's a farewell. It is, it is a valediction and an epitaph as well. Because you know, I'll probably never make any more films there. That's it now. Well, on that note, thank you so much for spending this time with me. It was an honor to meet you in Berkeley a few weeks ago, and an honor to talk to you now. You're welcome. Then I asked Terence if there was anything else he'd like to say to my Andy's Treasure Trove listening audience, and he was very kind enough to say the following. This is Terence Davis, and Andy's Treasure Trove is my cup of tea, and it will be yours too. A very charming man, and a great artist in my estimation. I urge you to rent or buy his films, especially The Long Day Closes, and see what we've been talking about, and see Terence's new film about Liverpool, of Time and the City, just now coming to the USA. I want to thank Terence again for having a recorded chat with me from London, and you can see a photo of both of us at the Pacific Film Archive on andystreasuretrove.com. Well, now I want to urge you, that's right, you, to please give me a call via the Andy's Treasure Trove listener call-in line. Write this number down right now, area code 415-508-4084. That's 415-508-4084. Or send me an email via andystreasuretrove.com. Thanks very much. Talk to you soon. All rights reserved. Andy Moore and Treasure Trove Productions.